It is not power that corrupts, but fear. Fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it, and fear of the scourge of power corrupts those who are subject to it. Thus wrote one Ah Sang Suu Kyi on October 15, 1991, in the Washington Post. These words, unfortunately, have come back to haunt her. On February the 1st, the Myanmarese military, under the command of Min Aung Liang, detained Suu Kyi and the leading members of her party, the National League for Democracy, just as they were due to take power after winning a landslide victory in the 2020 election. The military denounced the election as fraudulent and declared a state of emergency, officially seizing power and placing the country under martial law. In a televised address, Aung promised to hold free and fair elections once the goals of his administration, whatever they may be, were achieved. He also pledged that his junta will operate differently than the one which dominated the nation from 1962 to 2011. Before we begin our discussion, let's first go over some background. Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, has been inhabited for some 13,000 years. Throughout its history, it has consistently alternated between unification and division, with power typically concentrated around the central Ava region, reaching a short zenith around the mid-16th century under the Tonggu dynasty, would it occupy nearly all of modern Burma, Thailand, and Laos. The first unified Burmese state, the Kingdom of Pagan, also firmly established the central law of Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism, in the nation's culture and society. In the late 18th and 19th century, being confronted by the Qing juggernaut on one side and a resurgent Thai state on the other, the Kambang dynasty, which ruled Myanmar at the time, turned its attentions west, which proved fatal as successive wars of conquest brought it dangerously close to the British dominion in India. And, as any student of history knows, it's never a good idea to be next to the British. Sure enough, in three successive wars of conquest, the British annexed Burma. As with any other imperial possession, Burma was brutalized and exploited for its natural resources. And, as with any other imperial possession, the Burmese people began to agitate for independence from the first moment the Union Jack rose over Rangoon. Militias and rebel organizations soon formed, led largely by socialist and communist leaders. The most prominent of these organizations was led by Aung San, former leader of the Burmese Communist Party and committed anti-imperialist. Their opportunity came with World War II, when the Japanese swept aside the poorly organized and overextended British garrison in Burma with ease. Initially, rebel organizations cooperated with the Japanese, with some being caught up in Japanese promises of a pan-Asian front against European imperialism. It soon became clear, however, that while the Japanese were anti-European imperialism, they simply wished to replace it with their own. Aung ultimately led a coalition of Burmese forces under an anti-fascist league that successfully drove out the Japanese. With the Allied victory in 1945 and ensuing breakup of the British Empire, Burma won its independence on January the 4th of 1948. Alas, Aung San would not live to lead his new Burmese state, as he, along with his nearly his entire cabinet, was assassinated by members of the armed forces in 1947, a disturbing foreshadowing of what was to come. This event, however, also fully cemented Aung San's status as the embodiment of the promise of a free and democratic Burma, a martyr who carried the nation on his back to the last. A weak and unstable civilian government ruled the country until 1962 when it was overthrown in a military coup. The new military regime imposed centralized economic planning along Soviet lines, which, of course, soon devastated the economy. 
1988, the revolutionary spirit that would soon grip much of the communist world found its first expression in widespread protests for democracy in Myanmar, led by, led by student activists that were soon brutally crushed by the military, with deaths numbering in the tens of thousands. Despite this, in an act of colossal ignorance and arrogance, the military regime believed itself to be popular enough that it allowed free and democratic elections in 1990. Predictably, the regime lost in a landslide to an as-yet-unknown figure in Myanmar's politics, Aung San Suu Kyi. In 1988, Aung San Suu Kyi was but a British-educated political exile, consigned to the quiet life of an academic in Britain. Her return that year to Myanmar was meant to be a simple family visit, but the sight of the daughter of Aung hero, father of the nation, returning was enough to thrust Suu Kyi to the center of the spotlight as the new leader of the Burmese movement for democracy. The military, of course, refused to accept the results of the election and placed Aung Suu Kyi under house arrest, where she would remain for the next 20 years. During the period, she would cement her reputation in the Western imagination as an iron-willed champion of human rights and democracy, impeccably dressed, flower eternally pinned to her hair, the image of grace, intelligence, and poise. In the meanwhile, Myanmar descended further into chaos. The Stalinist economics practiced by the regime had made the nation one of the poorest in the world. Corruption was rampant, and the nation remained fiercely isolationist, even as global trade made many of its Southeast Asian neighbors fabulously wealthy. In 2007, a catastrophic fuel shortage led thousands of Buddhist monks to march in protest against the government, where they were join soon joined by students and the general public. The military, yet again, suppressed it with force. In 2008, however, Cyclone Nargis devastated the relatively prosperous rice farming regions of the Irrawaddy Delta, causing nearly $10 billion in damages, which, when coupled with outbreaks of ethnic conflict along the nation's western border, led Myanmar's leaders to finally concede. In 2011, under the leadership of Tain Sein, the military junta moved to liberalize the country, instituting a mixed economy, permitting labor unions and labor action, relaxing censorship, and releasing political prisoners, including Aung San Suu Kyi herself. In the 2015 general election, Aung Suu Kyi's party, the NDL, won 86% of votes, seeking, seizing control of all but one of the available seats. Western optimism, however, was soon tempered by State Councilor Suu Kyi's curious willingness to cooperate with the military, and entirely dashed when she failed to condemn the con genocide of the Rohingya Muslim community in the western parts of the country and even defended the military's genocidal actions in a trial at The Hague. It's safe to say, then, that Suki will not be able to draw from the same pool of western sympathy to combat this coup as she had in 1990. She does, however, remain intensely popular in Burma and hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets in recent weeks to protest the coup. So, the big question. What happens next for Myanmar, and what role should the United States and Western powers to play in this conflict, if any? Um, I will start out the discussion, and I think that there are a few things we need to set out. The first and most important thing is that we need to recognize that this is not a situation in which the odds are particularly favorable for a and the establishment of a democratic and stable Myanmar. At best, the best case scenario is the restoration of a woman to power who was complicit, if not in the genocide itself, then at least in the cover-up uh, of it. And I think we have to recognize that even assuming that this protest movement, movement succeeds, which is absolutely no guarantee, uh, the fundamental, the underlying issues 
are not going to be addressed. And this is what must be understood first and foremost, is that there isn't going to be a magic bullet. You know, there's no, there's no, you know, panacea. There's no cure-all that's going to fix Myanmar. It's going to take a lot of activism. And this really isn't going to solve it. But with that being said, I think, would it be better if the military didn't seize direct power? Yeah, probably. But we also have to recognize that there's a certain degree of sort of Western chauvinism, arrogance, that's sort of like, oh, well, we have democracy. Everyone should have democracy. We know what's best for the world. But Western interventionism has a spotty track record at best. And it's also... I don't think it's going to happen anyway, because considering there was an active genocide going on, which sparked no real intervention, I don't see why this would now spark an intervention. Um, the, the, the case for the moral case for intervention has been is easy to make, but should have been made years ago. Uh, so I don't think it will happen, but I don't think it should happen either way, because unless, you know, I, I would agree, in theory, with an intervention to pro to protect, you know, the Rohingya uh, Muslim community, but I don't think that that's what th that's going to look like. We have to recognize that the track record of Western intervention, intervention has been one that is consistently uh, seizing resources, uh, building sort of governments that are uh, cooperative with the sort of invading forces, but not necessarily ones that are stable and help the people there. So while there are a lot of underlying issues with sort of uh, the, you know, with Myanmar before the coup and certainly now after it, uh, we have to recognize that the solution isn't to just rebuild it in America or any other power's image. Myanmar is its own country. It's not going to exist um, in the image of another country. And with that being said, I think we have to recognize that the West is really bad at nation building. So why they should intervene in a very messy, difficult situation with the vague goal of nation building, that's not a particularly compelling case. So again, I would say that the ideal scenario would probably be a restoration uh, of the democratic government of Myanmar. Uh, combined with sort of more strident opposition to the military. I don't see either of those things happening, but I don't think the West should intervene unless um, they can intervene to prevent the genocide of the Rohingya Muslim community. However, I don't think that's why they, I don't think that's why they'd intervene. And I think the underlying problems that we've seen consistently throughout Western interventions over the previous decades indicates that if there were to be a Western intervention, it would not be a particularly effective one. It would be unfocused. It would be unsuccessful and we would be bogged down. Uh, Americans would suffer. Uh, certainly people in Myanmar would suffer and it really wouldn't help anyone. I agree. I think over the past decades, the West has developed this a very um, chauvinist, very nationalist ideal that it must save the Just world. Just over the past decade? Not the past decades. Developed this very chauvinist, nationalist outlook that demands that, you know, the West must save other nations from themselves. And I think this, well, there's no better term for it, a white saviorhood, is not the correct course of action here. Uh, Western liberalism and its proponents, including those in office in most Western countries right now, simply, well, it's not that they do not comprehend, it's that they believe in sort of this divine destiny to preserve democracy, to use the powers they have at their behest to try in vain to promote some sort of democratic effort, which in the end, as we have seen, only ends in chaos, brutality, 
and death. We saw it in Iraq. We saw it in Syria. We saw it anywhere the West intervened. Even if we restrict our operations, by our we mean I mean the West, to a intervention to rescue the Rohingya from the genocide, we would only see a repeat of Yugoslavia. I mean, what can we do? We can't land troops. The Myanmar, the Myanmarese military, despite um, decades of um, poor funding and uh, under a perpetually stalling economy still numbers in the hundreds of thousands Burma is very highly defensible territory and even if we could conquer Burma we would still have to set up a government there and uh, let's just say nation building isn't exactly in America's forte I propose that the best course of action right now is nothing at all not because that it's the best outcome but because it's the only way we don't make things go more wrong and pour oil on the pot a uh, pour oil on the fire i would have to agree with uh, both of you jason and harry uh, the united states um, as we all know has a long history of intervening in non-western states in order to you know bring about democracy or whatever bs they want to put up generally it's not really for democracy as you know it's more for resources or geopolitical hegemony and the burmese have been Fortunately, pretty lucky in this regard, actually, uh, by adopting uh, the Burmese, you know, socialist government in the 60s, uh, they managed to chart a third course between the communist bloc and the U.S. bloc. And fortunately, now they're in a geopolitical, they're in the middle of a geopolitical chess map between the United States, India, and its allies, and China, on the other hand, you know, vying over Southeast Asia and its resources. And... The Burmese have to make sure that they generally are, I would say, military is more friendly with China, but I hope that China, you know, doesn't use this situation to their advantage. And I think that the United States uh, can't, shouldn't really do anything, I agree. I mean, if we go into Burma and try to do something, we'll either incense the Burmese people, we'll end up doing more harm than good, as has been shown in Syria and Libya, Iraq, and countless other countries, unfortunately. Now, I think that the situation here is actually, I, I, I have a pretty, I guess, depressing outlook on this. I don't really think Burma is really going to, doesn't really have a bright future. I mean, this country, in terms of nation statehood, I mean, it, there's lots of ethnic minorities, as we know, in Burma, like the Kachin state, there's the Rohingyas, etc. And they're constantly at odds with the central government in uh, Yangon or whatever new capital is, Nate Bell or something. And the Burmese military has always tried to make sure that federalization doesn't come about. And this is, you know, perpetually creates a situation of instability within the country. So if we go in with nation building, we try to reestablish a democratic Burmese government, what it's most likely to do is it's going to just restart subjugating um, Kachin and, you know, Rakhine State. So I, I really don't see any good way to go about this. And on a further note, we shouldn't implement sanctions because sanctions undoubtedly hurt civilians and the vast majority of people far more than the upper echelons of government as you've seen in you know russia as you've seen in iran and other countries so the best course of action is the one that most countries the 99 percent history do is well we can't really do anything 
And maybe we shouldn't. We shouldn't be you know, sending, uh, you know, wasting valuable American lives on what an internal matter in another country. I mean, it's just the way of things, unfortunately. I absolutely do agree. And, but I, I don't think we should intervene, but at most, one thing that we could consider is uh, it might be a little bit of, uh, dangerous to do so, but to provide diplomatic support for separatist movements in Myanmar, because at this point, I don't think Myanmar has a future as a centralized state. It's never going to get anywhere if it remains a centralized state. I don't think even with with a federal state it'll get anywhere. It may simply be for the best that Myanmar breaks up into its constituent ethnic groups at this point. I have to agree with you, Harry, actually, um, on the idea of Myanmar breaking up. Um, I don't know about supporting separatist movements. I think there'd be geopolitical backlash, something like that. I think that would be unpopular with the Americans. That never stopped us before. I know, I know. We could just do but, it illegally. The secret okay. of green is uh, crime. Okay. I mean, in 62, one of the reasons why the military had the coup, well, first they wanted to implement their Marxist-Leninist you know, economic plan, but the other reason was because they wanted to make sure that the ethnic minorities didn't get uppity and create a federalized state. So I think this problem is just endemic with Burma. And the, the real best way solution is it, it would be a violent one, but it would end it for good. And it's just Burma needs to break up. Like it needs to break up into smaller pieces. That's I think that's the solution. I agree with you here. Yeah, I'm not sure about. I I I do think that a Burmese breakup wouldn't uh, wouldn't be the worst idea, but I do think supporting separatist groups isn't the best because the U.S. has done that before, and literally every time it has come to bite us in the ass. Um, well, the key word is is diplomatic support, any sort of military. Uh, or actual I mean, yeah, but they will fight back against the oppressive Burmese government with strongly worded letters from the U.S. State Department. <laughs> There is a slight problem. Chamberlain vibes. Yeah, I mean, see, that's the thing. With separatist movements fighting major militarized states that perpetuate that perpetrate genocide, yes, oh, I diplomatically support you. It's not gonna get you very far. Um, I feel like on one hand, um, the, I don't actually think that the problem is necessarily with supporting separatist movements in a sort of vacuum, but I think we have to recognize the reality that the U.S. Uh, for various reasons, and we can go into, why, what, what, you know, you can argue why, but the U.S. doesn't know how to pick them. And with that in mind, I don't know why we would trust the U.S. at this point to figure out how to pick them. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of the point, is that I don't even necessarily think that arm, providing arms to separatist movements is a necessarily terrible idea, but I sure wouldn't trust the U.S. to do it. And I think that's one of the critical things to remember. Uh, also, you have to remember the fact that the U.S. is kind of compromised on this front, if we're being honest. Um, you know, the U.S. has a conflict of interest between what is necessarily best for Myanmar and what might be more profitable. Uh, and we have to consider that certainly as an element. But also, I, I do think that um, you get into a problem with, I don't, I actually agree with you, Harry, uh, and I guess with the rest of the group that a more federal, federal uh, st system and preferably sort of a breakup of Myanmar is probably the solution long term. But in the short term, um, I don't know how much you can do, uh, just thinking about it, uh, I guess if you're talking about diplomatic support, one thing could be legitimizing, uh, separatist movements, but then I can kind of see how, um, why, why you wouldn't want to do that, because I don't necessarily believe this, but, uh, you know, from a real politique, uh, kind of perspective, 
uh, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, wouldn't essentially admitting that you want to break up Myanmar push everyone who isn't advocating for the breakup of Myanmar away from the U.S. and into the arms of other major powers? I mean, you'd be if you uh, implemented even the kind of bare bones diplomatic support Harry's talking about. You're essentially saying, I don't believe Myanmar should exist as a state, which, I mean, obviously you're going to lose uh, the government, but you're also going to lose a lot, a lot of political moderates who might be thinking, oh, we just need minor reforms. And they may be wrong, but that's the people you'd be returning to power anyway. So even if things break right and, you know, Myanmar returns to its flawed democracy, to advocate and so to support movements that actively seek to break up Myanmar would likely push Myanmar fully out of the U.S. orbit and into another country's orbit, um, just out of kind of a survival perspective of the government saying, well, you know, I don't want to see Myanmar broken up. Uh, so I think that there's, I don't necessarily believe that, but I think it's worth mentioning that from a purely sort of geopolitical standpoint, you're kind of compromising yourself. It's a very low it's a very high risk and low chance. You know, you're not gonna, you're not likely to get much out of it, and it's unclear exactly what happens when Myanmar breaks up. From the U.S.'s perspective, there's not much to be gained and a lot to lose. Not only that, it's um, well, I mean, I am all for letting uh, ethnic minorities provide their own state, but in the interest of a U.S. sphere of influence, I think that obviously. Advocating for the breakup of a sovereign nation and uh, nominal U.S. ally will severely damage the U.S.'s relations with other countries which to have their own struggles with ethnic minorities, which um, which uh, <laughs> is a lot. Turkey is perhaps the most prominent one, but... Israel a little bit, I mean. Yeah, I mean... It, it... So, like, it's way to present Myanmar as a very special case and it is sort of a special case in so much as it's I don't think it's unfair to call it a failed state no it's been yeah yeah it's it's definitely a failed state at this point it would it would probably push the military government away on the other hand I don't really see any prospects for bringing the military government closer to the United States so I don't think it would necessarily be that, that big of a loss. It might hasten something that's already inevitable, but that's not too big of a deal. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I would say that uh, geopolitics is something of a waiting game. And you're constantly, if something bad is going to happen, the geopolitical strategy is always to delay it as long as possible to hope that the situation changes eventually. But also, I think that you're right in that if it was just the military government, I think then it wouldn't be a particularly strong case. But I think we have to recognize that that's the position you're advocating for is not one that is shared by most sort of of the moderate Democrats in Myanmar, right? You wouldn't just be losing the military. Uh, you'd be losing, if, if not losing, then at least you would cre be creating a distance between yourself and kind of this more moderate movement that seeks to essentially, you know, f reform Myanmar, not, you know, truly break it up and make the, the system, the systematic changes that, you know, you believe is necessary. You have to recognize that that's not just alienating the military. That's also alienating uh, a large group of moderates who make up the democratic alternative to the military. So I would say that it, this really depends on what the United States wants to do in relation to its policy with China. And I think this is the most important thing in regards to Burma. Because the question is, is the United States, I mean, I personally would want to go non-interventionist, and in general, I don't, I don't like the United States intervening in foreign countries and in foreign affairs with troops overseas, 
deployed in bases and in foreign wars, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say the United States is going to continue Trump's policy of trying to ad hoc kind of contain China and, I guess, you know, raise the stakes of potential, I don't know, conflict with China. So let's say we're going to Burma. We're thinking, how can we get Burma onto our side, right? So if we want Burma on our side, then I think the best best solution is actually to go for a more unitary state and to keep basically just wait, uh, try to either court the Burmese military in, in, you know, in secret, like with, you know, just basically have a sort of temporary uneasy peace where we try to court the uh, Burmese establishment and say, hey, here, um, we're going to give you some investment and stuff and just don't fall into China's orbit. How about we agree on that? I think that's honestly the best solution for us. The alternatives, like trying to destabilize Myanmar with, you know, conflict in Kachin State or getting the Shan people to revolt, I think that will definitely get the ethnic Burmar people, the majority of Burma, to, you know, hate us. So that will push them into the arms of the Chinese. So I think that the best course of action is just to, act, is to actually cozy up with the military regime if we're looking at it from a geopolitical angle. I know it's not a good, you know, it's morally not such a great thing to do, ethically not such a great thing to do, but if you're playing a game of real politics, uh, then that would probably be the best solution for the United States. At this point, I wouldn't be so sure because there are still major protests in Myanmar which don't show any sign of abating yet. So something's going to happen in Myanmar that's either going to stop the protests or sort of unlikely at this point topple the military government. So obviously if we were to throw our morals and cozy up with all the authoritarian tin pot dictators of the world over, it'd be pretty easy and we'd have a pretty strong geopolitical hand. But at least in this case, I don't. I think that would still be a little premature. And if we have to, we have to, I suppose. But we shouldn't actively choose to cozy up with the tin pot dictators over, you know, a, what is now a fading hope for democracy. I see your point. Yeah, I agree. It would be kind of foolish to just go with the flow and say, "Hey, here, um, Burma, right? Oh, yeah, military uh, now in charge. Oh, that's great. We don't care. You know, new regime. Who cares? As long as you're loyal to us, I think. Yeah, I agree. But maybe at the very least, we should be somewhat not. We should condemn the Burmese, you know, military. You know, Joe Biden should go out and say we condemn military coup and stuff. But behind the scenes, we're kind of like. You know, it seems are okay, but so the main attention of the civilian populace in Burma and the United States is on the outward expressions of political expressions by their leaders and not on whatever's going on in the back channel communications. At least that's what I would assume that we should do. I mean, I think that, that you run to that point where um, you have to ask the question, which is fundamentally what does the most good and i think just kind of obstinately opposing the military government um is the right thing to do but i don't think that one it would be very effective and b even assuming it would succeed uh, i don't think the u.s would be able to provide a viable alternative so with that in mind uh, i'm not necessarily comfortable with advocating for backroom dealing with a dictatorship that just achieved power through a coup i think that's generally a bad precedent to set uh and one that we should avoid uh but you know that being said i think that you have to come to the conclusion of be, being pragmatic about the situation and recognizing that 
Burma is essentially between a rock and a hard place right now, and that the U.S. is not going to be able to do much to extradite uh, Myanmar from that situation. And with that in mind, I, I think I think the proper response is essentially to give it distance, um, to not engage, not get in any compromising position where you make a hard, you make a firm commitment either way, but just to keep. Uh, to give Myanmar space, because there's pretty much nothing the U.S. can do that would help the situation. Yeah, and on the subject of, you know, these great power games, I think it's... Uh, we talk about Chinese containment, we talk about limiting Chinese influence, and while that's all well and good, I, I think we, in the U.S., have been accustomed to seeing... L any of our opponents on the global stage as this Soviet Union-esque threat that needs to be stopped at every turn, or it will subvert our very being. But well, I mean, if you're Muslim, you got a lot to worry about China's expanding oh, influence. Oh no, so. no, that's obvious. I mean, if you're a Uyghur, you know, things are a lot like different. whoa, whoa. I mean, honestly, China right now is uh, worse than a lot of the Soviet Union was during much of the Cold War. So not not like not like in terms of I'm talking about like morally, like the the, the bad stuff that they're doing, you know. I mean, but let's yeah. be real here. The Communist Party does not have any morals. The only moral is serving Xi Jinping and obeying his yeah. command. I mean, right, say what you will about you know Khrushchev's incompetent plans. He he wanted to do good. But right. I, I don't think I, I I think that China is very clearly uh, at this point a state that is just pretty cruel and has no. You can't trust that they're going to do anything ever good. No, you know. Th well, no, that's true. However, I I think this sort of uh, expectations, these rampant fears of a Chinese century that overwhelm us all, you know, this sort of rampant fear-mongering about Chinese expansionism is a little unwarranted. China, I don't think, obviously China wants new spearlings. It wants things you can keep under its finger, but I think Myanmar is too much trouble even for the Chinese Communist Party. Because... Uh, North Korea? Well, North Korea has... North, <laughs> but North Korea... <laughs> North Korea has a special relationship with China in that it's literally that right? just, it's just the Chinese maintained buffer state. But the Myanmar why would they do the same thing in Myanmar? I mean, but the, but the regime in Myanmar, the Chinese, the Chinese regime has shown those crazy imperialist South Koreans got to be terrified of them. Well, no, because K-pop is coming, guys. K-pop is coming. That's right. Be very afraid. No, because the thing here is that the Myanmar, uh, the Myanmarese military and the, the junta has always been incredibly isolationist so china doesn't and china already has a perfect defensive border called the himalayas against india so really has very little interest in myanmar as it wants some access to myanmar reads ports but that's about it well I mean, we should remember burma is a very rich country like natural resource wise and burma as you mentioned is a gateway to the indian ocean i mean why go through the straits of malacca with the U.S. Navy very close by, you know, easily being able to cut off stuff from, what is it, Okinawa or whatever, when you can just transport stuff straight through Burma to Rangoon and then out into the Indian Ocean from there. Yeah. Not and, to mention, you, know, you can undermine India. Of, yeah, and, you know, maybe we can even set up some poor installations, maybe even a Chinese naval base somewhere in southern Burma on the coast, right off the coast of, yeah, India. Ooh, right, maybe but that's, that's a great geopolitical play. I mean, China I mean, doesn't I have... really have that strong of a need yet. Yeah, 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 I know. No, but like, we're thinking, we're thinking right. twenty years ahead. We're thinking yeah, like, long term, <laughs> like not not short term, long term. This is I what mean, China could. I mean, look at let's remember this: the Middle Kingdom has always been the region, has almost always been the regional hegemon. 
in Eastern Asia. For most yeah, but, of but it's the never past been, 2,000 years, but it's, it's never, been... Yeah, okay, I agree. It hasn't projected power much into Burma. I agree. Necessarily. The Qing Dynasty obviously went crazy with the, with the Northern tribes and tried to get into Burma, but were repulsed four times with tremendous casualties. But China historically has never been all that expansionist because China's pretty big. It has perfect natural defensive borders, tons of natural resources, literal billions of people. What's not to like? So most Chinese regimes, and I think including the CCP, has been pretty much satisfied with their wait 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 are you wait Um, that's not but that's not how that's not how imperialism works though it's not about like it is not it's not like they're going to just conquer myanmar Uh, they're trying to create a sphere of influence undermining india and the u.s and supplanting them in southeast asia and myanmar is a critical stepping stone in that i I don't think that i'm sure they want that's the problem I'm sure they want, you know, part of their new Belt and Road economic imperialist initiative. But let me remind you that that war isn't working so well. It's been a I catastrophic mean, failure. Well, and it's up. Well, it's been a debatable failure so far in that it hasn't. Many nations have actually rejected Chinese influence and even the, uh, well, mostly African nations that have accepted Chinese aid are becoming increasingly skeptical of the free <laughs> money coming their way. <laughs> lots, lots of debt. Uh, it has like Kenya, like Sudan, all these countries. You know, I mean, this is a lot of like, you know, money. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm fully with the whole um, extremely hawkish perspective that like China is just offering them shitty loans and then waiting for these nations to become bankrupt and then China can make them their slaves. I don't think it's that level but these nations are definitely catching on to the fact that china is pretty predatory when offering those loans but actually this one thing that was interesting there was a very specific example um as i recall uh there was a port in sri lanka that was specifically and i think it's interesting i think the belt and road to sort of build on that the belt and road initiative is sort of exaggerated in terms of its reach um because the port in sri lanka that is often presented i can't remember the name of it for the life of me but it's often presented as an example of Chinese expansionism. They're, repl- they're supplanting the West. Sri Lanka needed a port built, and they went to Chinese builders. But the truth is that it was initially a Canadian company. The Canadian company backed out. Uh, there was interest in getting the U.S. involved, and this was around 2008. So the U.S. company backed out when the economy collapsed. And so finally they turned to China. Now, China's been kind of inconsistent on actually doing it, so Sri Lanka isn't exactly huge on working with that Chinese company. But I think it's important to recall that for a lot of countries... China's not their first choice to work with, um, and that, you know, the idea that China is sort of supplanting a lot of power, like, especially the U.S., it's not necessarily the case, especially in the way that the idea that, like, China is, you know, all of a sudden the go-to. Most countries still generally prefer the U.S. and sort of Western builders before they want to work with China. Yeah, so... I agree that China has normally not been very expansionist in directly controlling, you know, foreign territories. I agree, but I don't see why, as Harry said, why China wouldn't want to expand its regional influence. I mean, now with modern technology, right, it's much easier to project influence across a mountain range when you can use economic levers, for example, right? So I don't see why the Chinese wouldn't want to undermine you know, U.S. or actually Indian influence in Southeast Asia. I mean, it, every, it's all, China has everything, you know, it's a win-win situation, right? It would be great for China to expand its influence at the expense of its adversaries, considering that the U.S. is, uh, you know, the U.S. is adopting a more belligerent stance towards China. 
So I actually, I, I would think that China is going to continue expanding its influence. I think it's actually, it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when uh, China starts, you know, cozying up more and more to Southeast Asia countries. I think actually it's going not as successfully as they hope, right? Vietnam is starting to get very wary of China and they're probably more likely to seek a proportionate with the United States. The Philippines has not been very conciliatory to the Chinese, etc. But I don't see why China wouldn't want to expand its, you know, sphere of influence into Burma. I mean, I'm sure they want um, to, well, but the thing... minor thing, in so much as China really, really hates drugs, and Burma really, really, really likes exporting drugs. I think at this point we can move away from the geopolitical discussion and on to how do we address the whole Rohingya crisis because people are getting killed, it's genocide. And, well, I mean, no matter what government comes in, it seems unlikely to stop. That is precisely the problem, I think. We want we want to do something about it. We want to be able to fix this problem. We want to be able to step in and make it stop. But the truth is that it's going to be diff- it would be difficult in any way to see see a major intervention through and that and to be clear that is what it would take inarguably uh the uh, the both the civilian government that was overthrown and certainly the military were complicit in this genocide this genocide is not going to stop no matter it's Myanmar is not going to have a change of heart there's not some political leader waiting in the wings to fix this with that in mind a stop to the genocide has to come from the outside Myanmar is not going to have this internal shift and with that and with that that is precisely the problem it's kind of hard to move an entire country on something as big as genocide you know the the go-to example of u.s intervention in a genocidal regime would be germany in world war ii which as you recall ended with the split up of Germany, which, you know, according to Harry Huang, maybe that's the solution. You have West and East, <laughs> West and East Myanmar. But uh, uh. In, all, in all seriousness, though, but seriously, folks, I think that's the point is that it's very difficult to intervene in a country where there's just no domestic desire to shift from a genocidal policy. It's, and that's not saying that there's no desire, but rather that there's no real political movement that is waiting to sort of move this. And with that in mind, any attempt to stop the genocide has to be treated as a movement that's going to have to pretty much build from scratch. They're not going to be able to work with a major political party. They're not going to be able to work with a segment of the military, right? Both the moderate Democrats and the military are very complicit in this. And so a U.S. intervention to end the genocide would not just be an intervention and sort of say, oh, no, bad Myanmar, don't do this. It would be almost having to rebuild the government to not be genocidal because basically uh, a few years ago Myanmar's government made that leap to say we're okay with genocide we're okay with covering it up in an in international courts of law we're okay with continuing to per- to perpetrate it and that's not that's not that's not something you can walk back with that in mind if we're looking at an intervention the intervention would have to be dramatic it would have to be careful it would have to be very effective and that's not something american interventions have been so i think we also so not only would it have to be very well planned out which is not a guarantee i think we also have to recognize that what an intervention would have to look like a successful intervention that is it would not be glamorous it would be difficult um and i don't think that it would be one you could sell to the american public in that way i mean 
you know, everyone knows the bomb, 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 Iran kind of stuff. You know, it feels good. It's a very kind of rah-rah, jingoistic, we're going to stick it to the bad guys. But Myanmar, it's not actually so clear to the American public. Like, Myanmar is not this boogeyman that has been brought up for years and years, whereas the Middle East was generally, especially uh, after the OPEC-induced oil shortage uh, during, the, during the Carter administration, the Middle East and sort of oil-possessing countries in there have always been demonized. Um but that's not the case for Myanmar. So you're not going to find a ton of domestic support for a major intervention, especially an intervention that is not going to be a, we're going to roll in, be welcomed as liberators and roll out. It would have to be a long, determined intervention in which the U.S. took a very active role in sort of both allowing, both being willing, basically having to do two things that the U.S. is very bad at. Both A, being willing to be patient and commit significant resources to what is initially going to be small returns, and B, be humble enough to accept that they can't fix everything themselves and sort of allow local leaders to take point. With that in mind, I, I just don't see a situation in which a U.S. intervention um, is going to be very successful at reforming Myanmar. Uh, the only thing I could think of is that it is a U.S. intervention to quite literally just m essentially force the Burmese government to stop. Um, there, I don't really know what else you could do at this point, because I don't think there's any other feasible option. Yeah, I mean, I agree in that. This isn't even like Iraq, where at least the people were dissatisfied with Hussein. Um, in this case, um, one, both governments are genocidal. And even if we restored Aung Suu Kyi's government, Aung Suu Kyi herself has proven pretty committed to the genocidal course of action. And that genocidal course of action is incredibly popular because the Burmese people are engaged in this sort of spirit of crusade in which they've been given an enemy and they must combat it, which uh, is rather contrary to the spirit of Buddhism, especially Theravada, a school um, which I believe emphasizes that its monks actively carry bells in front of themselves and sweep the floors before them to as to not injure any wild animals or step on any bugs. But it appears they're perfectly uh, okay with murdering millions of innocent Muslims. Yeah, unfortunately, I think the only way to really stop the genocide would be a war, an intervention into Burma, and that would result, that would probably result in some kind of dragged out, either if we're just going to take over the Rakhine state and stop at like the Rocky Mountains, and that would just be, that would end up in just a long-term, you know, attritional type of war. If we go in and just take over the whole country, which I have no doubt the U.S. could do, that would just result in a ton of instability. Uh, there'd be numerous ethnic revolts throughout the country as they try to, you know, you seize the moment to declare independence. There'd be no one would know who, who's going to fill the vacuum. If we put in Aung San Suu Kyi, she's just going to end up being, you know, we have we have doubts in her, as you said, doubts in, in, her, in her ability to actually commit to a non-genocidal policy, etc., etc. And if we end up trying to force her to do as we wish, we'll end up becoming unpopular, we'll be seen as imperialistic, aggressors. Yeah, basically this is just a rock again, and we don't want that. I think, unfortunately, as I said earlier, the best course of action is to provide aid and relief, and to provide us, you know, as much, you know, diplomatic support as we can um, to those in Burma who are unlikely to commit genocidal policies. I mean, I don't think there's not much we can do anything. It's a very sad situation. I mean, I'm just thinking back. If we're in the Clinton years, right, and you're like Bill Clinton. Now, 
unfortunately for Bill Clinton, he ended up intervening in like the worst, in, in the bad places. Like he went to Yugoslavia, that didn't go so well. He went to Somalia, that didn't go so well. And then unfortunately, during his uh, tenure there was, in Rwanda, there was a genocide, as we know, and that ended up with the deaths of over 800,000 Tutsis. And that was a disaster. So, but Clinton didn't intervene in that. And I'm just thinking, you know, what would have happened if, say, Clinton intervened to stop the genocide? I mean, Rwanda was a very small country. The Hutu government was extremely weak and was overthrown by Paul Kagame. So, I mean, could have easily overthrown and stopped the genocide and just put Paul Kagame in power. And I'm thinking, is this the same with uh, Rwanda? Sorry, is this the same with Burma? Do we have a moral obligation to stop a genocide? And I'm thinking, perhaps, maybe we do, but. In the end, at least we're looking at it from a outcome-based standpoint, I think it would actually result in more, more violence. So I would advise against intervention. It's it's just a lose-lose. I, I just, just it's very, it, it's actually just a tragic situation. I do share the same sentiment. The best we can probably do is hope, hope Bangladesh and promise them things to, uh, for their continued cooperation and resettling the Rohingya is probably the best we can do. Okay, I think we have come to a unanimous conclusion. Plenty of times on this show, we have concluded that the best course of action is no action at all. However, I think this is the first episode and the first scenario in which we've concluded that the only course of action that does not lead to rampant violence, catastrophic loss of life, and potential worsening of horrific genocide is to stand by. Democracy... Us four on this show, we are committed to the value. I think that the U.S. and the West and Western powers in general, despite their chauvinism, are committed to democracy out of a genuine desire to see a democratic world. But I also see that we also see that there is no realistic scenario whatsoever for a U.S. intervention or a Western intervention or even just Western pressure exerted on Myanmar that would make the regime either stop its genocidal actions or return to democracy. The popular movement that's currently concentrating around Aung Suu Kyi may have a chance. It most likely will not. So for the foreseeable future, Myanmar will exist under a military dictatorship. It, it's a sad conclusion, but any course of action we take won't just be disastrous like Iraq was. It will be possibly the greatest policy blunder in the history of the United States, and that is saying a lot. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay in, stay healthy, stay safe.